I invite you to turn your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to read to you just two verses there. I told you last week, I'll tell you again this week. We're taking a break in the series entitled Dear Paul because here at the beginning of this new year, I want to take a few minutes and talk with you about some things that are on my heart before we go back to that series from 1 Corinthians. Last week we talked about dreaming again. And I have had a number of you who have shared encouraging words about how God used that message to challenge you that after a a long period of uh, feeling like your dreams were dead, being challenged by, by God to dream again, that God has something that he wants to do in your life and something that he wants to do through your life. Today, I want to talk about another subject that's very, very important as we think about uh, the first of the year, and that's what we'll, de- we'll call indescribable compassion. And I want you to follow along with me just two verses, chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. I love that phrase, don't you? He was moved with compassion. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today that you will move our hearts with compassion. We're not going to change our families. We're not going to change our community. We're not going to change this world without compassion. Lord, we acknowledge that sometimes compassion is difficult. The politically charged environment in which we live, uh, the morally charged environment in which we live, so many other areas, Lord, that cause us to have an angst, to be aggravated, to be provoked. Sometimes, Father, we forget that we're supposed to be living and loving like Jesus. We're supposed to be people who are compassionate, that our hearts are moved with compassion. Lord, we're committed to making our pronouncements and our declarations. But sometimes, Lord, we're not as moved to reach into another person's life and offer them the love of Jesus Christ and to show them the compassion of Jesus Christ. God, will you make us a more compassionate people and will you start that work in me Lord, I want to be more like you when it comes to compassion. And I pray, Father, that you'll challenge our hearts. We're going to see people today. We're going to see people this week. We're going to see people this month, this year, that desperately need someone who's seeking to live and love like Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we can be those individuals, those people who are moved with compassion. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I've been doing something for the last number of weeks, and that is I've been reading the Gospels just over and over and over. Just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you finish, you go back and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you finish, you go back and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I've been immersing myself in the story of Jesus, trying to immerse myself in the story of Jesus. I've been trying to be baptized in the gospel story, the unfolding gospel story that is told to us in those four accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've noticed, if you've ever done any of that kind of reading where you're, you're reading not to stop so much and look deeper into a verse of scripture, but you're just looking to baptize yourself and immerse yourself as much as you can in a story so that you read it over and over and over again. I don't know if you've noticed or not, if you've ever done that before, but did you know that the gospel stories are primarily stories about the Passion Week? 
of Jesus Christ, about the week that leads up to the crucifixion of Jesus and the things that come after the crucifixion of Jesus. If you were to break down the Gospels, a third, hear the term, a third of the Gospel of Matthew, from Matthew 21 to 28, is about that last week of the life of Jesus. A third of the Gospel of Mark, from Mark chapter 11 to chapter 16, is about the last week of Jesus' life. A quarter of the Gospel of Luke, from Luke 19 to chapter 24, is about the last week of the life of Jesus. And nearly half, nearly half of the Gospel of John, from John chapter 12 to, verse, uh, to, to chapter 20, is about that last week of the life of Jesus. And actually, in the Gospel of John, uh, in the Gospel of John alone, Chapters 13 to 19 are about one day out of the last week of the life of Jesus. In other words, there are 89 chapters in all four Gospels. And of those chapters, 29 of them are about Jesus' final week. And so even by doing the math, even by doing the numbers, you begin to see that the focus of the Gospels over and over is what Jesus has done for us. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary for us. The penalty that he took on our behalf. One author said, the Gospels are essentially passion narratives with extended introductions. Passion narratives with extended introductions. Why? Because Jesus and the gospel writers want you to know that Jesus loves you and that Jesus has given his life for you and that Jesus paid the penalty of your sins and the sins of all the world. And Jesus wants to come and bring <coughs> to all of us the eternal life that he has to give. But not only do you recognize that these four gospels are taken up primarily with this last week of the life of Jesus. When you're reading through the Gospels in a quick fashion like I've been doing, <clears throat> you're always taken up with the reality of the compassion of Jesus Christ. You see that word on numerous occasions <clears throat> as you read through the Gospels, the word compassion. And it's being used by Jesus. <clears throat> He's either showing compassion or is talking about his compassion. But the one thing you notice as you read through the Gospels is the enormous number of times that you see Jesus <coughs> being compassionate with others. He had compassion to the multitudes. <coughs> I'm going to have to get some water, y'all. <clears throat> this makes good TV. Uh, Jesus had compassion. I look like one of those young preachers now. <laughs> Put his water bottle right out there on the edge of the table. <clears throat> he had compassion on the multitudes. We find it in Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 9, 36 and 15, 32 and Mark 6, 34 and 8, 2. He had compassion on the sick. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. He had compassion on a blind man, Matthew 20 and verse 34. He had compassion on a leper, Mark chapter 1, verse 41. He had compassion <coughs> on a demon-possessed child, Mark chapter 9, verse 32. He had compassion on a bereaved mother, Luke chapter 7, verse 13. And those are just the times that it says Jesus had compassion. Those don't include all of the other opportunities where you see his compassion, where you see Jesus reaching out to people who are broken and to people who are hurting. But it's impossible when you read the Gospels, if you pay attention, to not recognize that the most compassionate person who has ever lived is Jesus himself. <clears throat> it's the reason why we say we want to make disciples who live in love like Jesus. We want people to learn the compassion of Jesus Christ. Do you know what, the, what we mean by compassion? Uh, compassion is more than empathy. 
Compassion is more than sympathy. <clears throat> when we say, oh, we're so sorry you're hurt, that's sympathy. When we say, oh, we're so hot, sorry you're hurt and we hurt with you, that's empathy. But when we say, oh, we're so sorry that you're hurt and we'll do anything we can to stop your hurt, that's compassion. Compassion doesn't just say something. It doesn't just feel something. Compassion does something to make a difference in the person's life on whom you are showing compassion. C compassion is love in action. It doesn't just say something. It doesn't just feel something. It does something for the other person. And that's the kind of compassion that you see all over the stories of the Gospels about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether the word is specifically used or not, or whether you just see him exemplifying it, the reality is you'll never find anyone more compassionate than Jesus. As a matter of fact, have you noticed in the reading of the Gospels how people gravitated to Jesus? Now, please listen to me. Jesus never compromised the truth. He never made anyone comfortable in their sins. Uh, he never went along and said, it's okay that you're doing those evils. He never did any of those things. And yet people gravitated to the person of Jesus Christ. He was a magnet he would go somewhere and people would find him and multitudes, as in our text, multitudes would come out to him and he would look at the multitudes like sheep that have no shepherd and he would be moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. You know, there's a number of stories that you can talk about the compassion of Jesus, but <clears throat> I want you to just show you these that are right here in chapters 8 and chapter 9 very quickly. Just turn back to chapter 8 for a moment, and you meet, first of all, in chapter 8, verse 2, a leper. <clears throat> you realize there was probably no disease as feared during that day as the disease of leprosy. You couldn't be around anyone. You were isolated from everyone. You could live in a leper colony, but you could not live amongst the population of the people in general. You had to wear garments that indicated that you were leprous. You had to cry aloud that you were a leper if anyone came anywhere near you that was from the general population. But you notice in chapter 8, verse 2, and behold, a leper came. And worshiped him, saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And you know the answer to the question. If you're willing, yes, I'm willing. And Jesus does what for the leper? He heals him. In verse 5, we meet a centurion. It says in chapter, chapter 8, verse 5, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, <coughs> my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And what does Jesus do? <clears throat> Jesus doesn't have to go. Jesus just speaks the word and healing takes place. Or you look at chapter 8, verse 14, and you're introduced to Peter's mother-in-law. Did you know that Peter had a mother-in-law? Did you all know that Peter had a mother-in-law? Uh, the Catholic Church is based, uh, their whole priesthood is based uh, on a lie. Uh, Supposed at first pope, Peter he was, he was married. He had a mother-in-law, and she was sick. And what does Jesus do? Verse 14, now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. And what does Jesus do? Jesus touches her and heals her. Or you get to verse 16. He says, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Or you get over to verse 28 of that chapter, and you're introduced to two men. Mark tells us about one man. Matthew tells us about two men. But do you understand where there's two men, there's one man. And where there's one man, in this case, there's two men. There's no contradiction. Both of these men are demon-possessed. Both of these men do the most bizarre things possible. One of the men, at least, they try 
to tie him up and try to bring him under control, but there isn't any way to bring him under control. He breaks free and he does bizarre things. He cuts himself. He cries aloud. He runs through the graveyard crying aloud. All of that kind of craziness. By the way, a lot of things we see today that we can't explain, it's more than just the drugs. The drugs are just the open door for the demonic to take place. And here were two men who were possessed of demons. And what does Jesus do? Jesus sets them free from their demonic oppression. Look at chapter 9. The story opens with a man who was a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus comes to him and tells him that his sins are forgiven. And then a little bit later, Jesus will tell him to get up and he'll walk away. He'll walk away. Jesus had compassion on him. Or look at verse 9 of chapter 9. You meet a man by the name of Matthew. Whose gospel are we reading? We're reading Matthew's gospel. Do you know one of the most hated people of the day was the publicans, the tax gatherers, and that's exactly what Matthew was. And yet Jesus comes by, sees Matthew, and says to Matthew, follow me. And Jesus changes the life of Matthew. Or you get down to verse 18 of chapter 9. And he tells us about a ruler that comes whose daughter had just died and who believes that if Jesus will just come, that he can raise his daughter from from the dead. And Jesus does exactly that. Or you get to verse 20. As he's making his way to this man's house where his daughter had died, a woman presses through the crowd who's been hemorrhaging all of these many years of her life. She's an outcast to society. She causes anyone who comes in contact with her to be considered unclean. And yet she presses through the crowd because she says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, just one of the tassels at the hem of his garment, What'll happen is I'll be healed. And she touches in faith and she's instantaneously healed. Or you get to verse 27 and you find that Jesus has two blind men that are crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. And what does Jesus do? Jesus gives the sight back to those two men. Or you get to verse 32 and you meet a man who is mute and demon-possessed. And Jesus opens his mouth so that he can speak, and he casts out the demon. Do you get the idea? Everywhere Jesus went, Jesus was seeing people, and Jesus was showing compassion on people. And if you'll notice carefully, because some of you fit in this category, please listen to this preacher. Some of you fit in this category. You look at these people, and you'll see that most of them were the outcast. They were the underdogs of society. They were the neglected. They were the helpless. And they were the hopeless. They were the people laying in the gutters of the street, walking Route 60, standing at a, a spot begging money. They were the ones that were living in a crack house or prostituting themselves on one of the streets of our city. They were the ones that most everybody else wanted nothing to do with unless they were the law enforcement and let's take them under arrest. And yet Jesus sees these people And Jesus has compassion on these kinds of people. There's a Canaanite woman that comes to Jesus in chapter 15. Just look over a page or two. She comes to Jesus in chapter 15. You understand that a a Gentile woman, a Canaanite woman, has no part in the story of Jesus or the story of Israel, I should say. Uh, She's not a part of the promises of Abraham. She's not a part of what God has promised to do through through the nation of Israel. But she's in desperate circumstances in verse 22. And behold, a woman of Cana came from that region and cried out to him saying, Have mercy on me, O O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. And Jesus enters into a conversation with a woman who's an outcast. 
She's helpless and she's hopeless. She is the ultimate underdog of society. She has no right to the privileges and the promises of the nation of Israel. She's not an Israelite herself, but she knows that Jesus is the one who's compassionate, and she knows that Jesus is the one who has the power to change her own daughter. And she comes, and she begins to beg. By the way, if you'll notice verse 25, it says, Then she came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. Can I just tell you, sometimes that's the only thing you can say. You find yourself so desperate, the world around you so dark, the difficulties ahead of you, and you don't know what to do. And all you can do is pray, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Please, Lord, help me. You don't have to say any other words. He sees you and he hears you. Lord, help me. And this woman who isn't deserving of any of the rights or any of the privileges of Israel comes and says, Lord, help me. Jesus says in a conversation with her, should I take what belongs to the family, the children, and give it to the dogs. And you'll notice he uses a word there for dogs, about little dogs. There were dogs that roamed the streets that were like, you know, wolves that were dangerous and deadly. Uh, they were destructive, but there were little dogs that were introduced by Rome that were like pets. And he asked the question, should I take what's on the table and give it to the little puppy dogs? And she says, even the crumbs fall from the master's table. And what does Jesus do for her? Jesus gives healing to her daughter. Jesus shows compassion on someone who would have been considered the ultimate of the underdog, the ultimate of the outcast, <clears throat> the ultimate of those that were helpless and hopeless. Or think about the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. You talk about racial tension Racial tension existed between the Samaritan and the Jews. They did not like each other. And Jesus goes through Samaria. He comes to the outside of the city of Sychar. He sits down at a well. And a woman comes out to meet him, most likely in the heat of the day. She comes out by herself. Do you understand why she's by herself? It's because nobody else wants to be with her. Nobody else wants to be around her. Why? She's been married five times. She's living with a man who is not her husband. I mean, she's one of those helpless and hopeless, one of the underdogs, one of the neglected, one of the outcast, whether it's racially outcast or whether it's by her lifestyle, she's outcast. And yet Jesus engages her in a conversation. And in that conversation, he tells her about the living water. I'll have some of that. <laughs> he tells her about the living water that can spring up from within her and be a well that never runs dry. And ultimately, the conversation ends with her leaving the water pots and going back to the town. Do you know, you, you know when I believe she became a believer in Jesus? When she left her water pots. And she goes back into Syker and she says, I, I want you to come out. I want you to meet a man who told me everything who claims to be the Messiah, and this great crowd of people come out, and they too come out to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here is a woman on whom Jesus had compassion. Nobody would even go to the well to draw water with her. Or think about the paralytic in John chapter 5. <clears throat> there was a belief that at that pool at Bethesda, that when the water was stirred by an angel, the first person in would be healed. And so early in the morning, people would bring their loved ones, all the sick that they had, hoping that that would be the day the angel would stir the water. And Jesus comes to that pool on that day, and there's a man who all of his life, most of his life, almost 40 years of his life, he's been a paralytic. <clears throat> they bring him and they lay him at the water, by the side of the water. Jesus sees him. Jesus comes to him and says, you know, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, when the angel stir, stirs the water, whoever gets there first is the one who gets the blessing that, that God bestows through that. And, and the, the result is that I don't get there. I can't get there. And Jesus says, I'm going to heal you today. And a man who for almost 40 years of his life <clears throat> had nobody else to help him 
was a man that, on whom Jesus showed compassion. Do you get the idea of what I'm trying to say through my coughing? Do you get the idea of what I'm trying to say? Everywhere Jesus goes, Jesus is showing compassion. Jesus is living and loving the way we're supposed to live and to love people. We're supposed to recognize the down and out, the outcast, the underdog, the one that nobody else wants to be around, the one that everybody else shuns. Jesus goes to them. And while we don't have the power that Jesus had to bring healing to their physical bodies, we have the power to show compassion on people who are in desperate need of experiencing compassion. As a matter of fact, I would tell you that you, you could go on talking about the stories of Jesus' compassion ad infinitum. In John chapter 21, verse 25, it says that if the if all the, the world couldn't contain, if all the books were written about what Jesus has done, all the worlds could not contain the things that he's done. Think about that. Th think about all the people's lives who've been changed. Your life can be changed. You may have made a mess of things. You may be laying in a gutter somewhere. The reality is your life can be changed because there is a God in heaven who has compassion on people who are broken, who are bleeding, who are hopeless, who are outcast, whom everybody else walks by. Jesus stops. And Jesus sees you. If you recorded everything Jesus did, including all of these things that aren't told to us because there's not enough paper to write it down or enough places or libraries to store it, you could read story after story after story after story after story. What changed your life? Somebody showed you compassion. Somebody cared enough for you <clears throat> to come and tell you that Jesus loved you and somebody came, cared enough about you to be there for you and to show you the compassion of Jesus Christ. Here's the truth. People want to know that we care before they care who we know. People want to know that we care before they care about who we know. And we as a church have got to get out of the comfort of our, our church building, out of, off the comfort of the pews and away from the air conditioning and the heating, get away from the nice paved parking lots. And we've got to start showing compassion. And that starts by me showing compassion. And all of us looking for ways to show the compassion of Jesus to others. Five things I want you to write down. To show compassion, we must look observantly. To show compassion, <clears throat> we must look observantly. Do you realize that the problem for too many of us is that we just don't see the needs of the people that are around us? Or if we don't see them, or if we do see them, I should say, we're just so conditioned against them that we really don't care as much as we ought to be caring anymore? There were two psychologists from California that ran several studies to see if social class, if social class affected people's ability and willingness to care about someone else. And you know what the results of the study were? The more you climbed the ladder of the social class, the less you noticed and the less compassion you showed on others that were around you. They concluded that wealth and abundance give a sense of freedom and independence from others. I mean, the less you need from others, the less you notice the needs of others. There's something about being in a place of need that causes you to recognize the needs of others. Think about it for a moment. <clears throat> You've ever been through a health crisis when I have been through health, health crises in my life, it heightens your sense of other people who are going through health crises. That's why I always pray for a doctor who's been through what I'm going through, at least to some degree, so that he can be sensitive and, and have a little compassion and understand what I'm going through, right? 
Now, you can't have everything that everybody has. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm simply telling you that when you, <clears throat> you rise on the ladder of success, the result is that oftentimes what you miss in the climb are the very people that need compassion because you become independent. You don't see their dependence. You just wrap yourself in the safety of where you are. And if you don't think that's a biblical principle that can be worked out, that's a, that's a reality that you have to deal with, listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Do you hear what he says? Here's real wealth. Real wealth is when you take what you have and you share it with others. <clears throat> when you notice the people around you that are hurting, though you might not be hurting and you have, might have a measure of independence in your own life, you don't overlook those who are dependent and those that are broken because you have been through a crisis, a crisis you know and recognize the, the sensitivity of others who are going through a crisis or crises. There's a moving story about a man who was working in a shoe store in Europe. It was during the wintertime, and he noticed a little boy outside the bakery. He was barefoot, and he was standing on the grate because coming up out of the grate was the steam and the warm that kept his feet warm. Well, the store owner saw this little boy. He was surrounded by shoes. I mean, every shelf is covered with shoes, but he was uncertain about what to do. <laughs> uncertain about what to do. But then there was a little middle-aged lady who walked by and saw this little boy trying to keep his feet warm. She bent down. She spoke some words to the little child. She brought him inside the shoe store. She brought, uh, bought him a brand new pair of shoes and some socks. And as that boy was shivering in the cold, he put on those warm shoes and those warm socks. And then he said to the lady in his innocence, are you God's wife? And she said, no, son, I'm just one of his children. And she smiled and said, well, he smiled and said, well, I knew you had to be kin to him somehow. I mean, when we're observant, when we look attentively, when we're observant, we'll notice the needs of others that we can meet and show the love of Christ. Too many of us are surrounded by a store full of shoes, wondering what we, would, what we should do next. Do you get the image? We're surrounded by a store full of shoes and we're paralyzed and doing nothing to help somebody who desperately needs a pair of shoes. I was touched by something that I read online on social media. I rarely read social media. I like to keep my sanity, what little is left. I rarely read social media, but I caught this on social media. If it's on social media, that's public, right? So even if I didn't get permission to read this, they've already told everybody anyway, so I should have permission to share it, right? Thank you. This was written by a lady with whom I'm a friend. And I quote, angels are in Huntington today. I was eating lunch alone. A couple stopped by my table and said, we're praying for you. I said, excuse me, do I know you? They said they attended Lewis Memorial Church where David Lemming is pastor and Mary, his wife. I said, yes, I know them and watch their services on Sunday. They said, could we pray with you? And I said, sure. So we held hands and prayed. They gave me their names and I gave them mine. They asked where all my cancer was, and we had a brief conversation. When I got ready to pay my bill, I found out this couple had paid my bill. And then she finishes out with this little phrase, it was the angels, with three exclamation points at the end. It was the angels. I don't know who you are. I don't want to know who you are. 
That's not important who you are. You didn't do it to be recognized or to be seen. But the point is, we have to be willing to look observantly. There are people all over, everywhere. And we're surrounded by a store full of shoes, looking at kids with no shoes, and we can't figure out what to do. Secondly, not only must we look observantly, but we must listen intently. We must listen intently. We've got to listen to the words people are saying and the way they're saying those words. People are telling you something about themselves by the words and by the inflections in their voices. We're so busy, we drown out with all of our music and all of the podcasts and everything else. We don't have time to listen to the people that are around us. And yet Jesus not only looked observantly at all of those that were around him, Jesus listened intently to those that were around him. During the Christmas season, there was a woman that posted a Facebook message that read, took all my pills, be dead soon, so bye-bye, everyone. There was a total of 148 comments that were made. Some of them were mocking her. She had 1,000 Facebook friends. Facebook friendships are not real friendships. She had more than 1,000 Facebook friends, but apparently none of them had compassion, and no one called her, and no one checked on her. And the next day, the police found her dead body. Her suicidal postings had been taken down from Facebook, from her Facebook wall, and they had been replaced by a lot of loving remembrances and a lot of loving memories. But it was too late. Hey, I tell people all the time, give the flowers to the living. Don't wait till they're dead. They need to know their love today. Once they're gone, they're in the arms of the most loving Savior there is. If they're a child of the living God, we don't listen very intently, do we? We're not listening to what people are saying. We're too busy. The TV's on. We're watching our favorite movie. We're listening to the radio. We've got podcasts going. I mean, have you, have you been to the, the place where you got the person waiting on you and they've got an AirPod in one ear? trying to take your order. <clears throat> Are y'all here? A few years ago, a comedian named Pete Davidson, whose comedy I don't recommend, appeared on Saturday Night Live. He made a really, really crude joke about Congressman Dan Crenshaw. If you know Dan Crenshaw, he's the Navy SEAL who lost an eye in combat. And not only his politics, but even that patch became a joke to Pete Davidson. Well, when person, people heard this, were made aware of it, I mean, the public just lost it. They just lost it. And they began posting on social media all of these attacks against this comedian. I mean, ruthlessly attacking this comedian, who, by the way, has his own problems with depression and mental illness. He himself says he has his own problems with depression and mental illness. Until finally he could take it no more, and one evening he posted on his Instagram, and he said, I really don't want to be on this earth anymore. I don't know how much longer I can last. Just remember, I told you so. Crenshaw, who is not only a congressman, but he's also a Christian, a believer in Jesus, saw that post. He contacted uh, Pete Davidson, and he told him that God had put him here for a reason, and it was his job to find that purpose and to live that way. And I would say to you that Congressman Crenshaw may well have saved that comedian's life that night. You know why? Because he listened intently. He recognized that there was somebody who was saying something, and he could have said, well, I'm angry, and I'm bitter about what you said and about the fun you made of, of my eye patch or the fun you made of my life or my politics. I could have, I could have been angry and held on, held on to it, but he laid aside the anger. He laid aside the anger, 
and he reached out to a man, and he may well have saved that comedian's life, even though he was radically different politically and in his religious beliefs. Are we listening? Did you just sit down today and listen to anything going on from anybody around you? Did you hear anybody? Some, some of us rush out of here like a bullet out of a gun. We, we don't want to hear anybody or anything from anybody. And God put you here to live and love like Jesus. God put you and me here to show compassion. And we have to look observantly and we have to listen intently. And thirdly, we have to linger patiently. We have to linger patiently. We can't be in a rush and we can't be in a hurry. And we have to show compassion. And showing compassion takes time and it takes patience. Well, I've got a schedule to keep. I understand you have to have a schedule. I have a schedule. I have a calendar. I have appointments. But you understand sometimes the best thing you can do is just linger with somebody and just be patient and not be in a hurry, not be in a rush. And can I just take it a little aside here for a moment? All of you that have young children, all of you that have young children, you're still raising your children, please listen to me for a moment. I don't have anything theologically in common with Mother Teresa, but I want to tell you I love what she says here. She says it's easy to love the people far away. It's not easy to love those close to us. It's easier to give, up a, give a cup of rice to relieve hunger than to relieve the loneliness and pain of someone unloved in our own house. Bring love, she says, into your own home, for this is where our love for each other must start. Moms and dads, it's important for your kids to be involved in activities, but I got news for you. They don't have to be involved where they have no time to breathe. They need for you to linger. They need for you to linger patiently with them sometimes when there's nothing going on and there's nothing scheduled next that it's just mom or dad and children and you're just loving each other, and you're just enjoying one another's company. You remember when we used to sit down and have dinners together? Ooh, I touched a sensitive subject, didn't I? We have to linger patiently. We have to begin lingering patiently among our own families. We also have to linger patiently among all people when they're, that are hurting and in need did you notice if, as we read through some of those stories and if you'll read through the gospels, did you notice that Jesus is never, he's never, 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 never. Jesus is never in a hurry. If I'm in a hurry, it means I've gotten something off balance in my life. I mean, if that's the characteristic of my life, I'm, I'm running, you, you know, like that, is it a mouse or a gerbil or whatever it is that runs on that wheel? And goes going so fast, he just goes right over with it and picks up and keeps running just like that. Sometimes we don't have enough time because we're running so fast to even notice the people, let alone look at them, let alone listen to them. We can't even linger patiently for a little while to even get to know them. Because we're so busy. If there was a contest, a, context, a contest for the most caring child in the world, I think I could name a little boy that might fit that, that contest and might ought to win that, boy, that contest. It's a little four-year-old boy who lived next door. His family lived next door to an elderly man and his wife. The elderly wife got cancer, and within a few months, she was gone to heaven. And on seeing this man cry, the little boy climbed up onto the, the lap of this elderly man and he just sat there. Later on, the, this gentleman said to his, this little boy's mother, he said, I, I just want you to know how much I appreciated the little boy's encouragement. I just appreciated his encouragement. And when the mother got the little boy away and was alone, he, she, she asked him, she said, what did you do? What did you say? And he said, nothing. I just helped him cry. Nothing. I just helped him cry. How many people does Jesus come alongside and Jesus just linger with them? 
and doesn't rush on from them. Doesn't push them. You know, you're not in my schedule. You're not on my schedule. By the way, the woman in Matthew chapter 9 that, that, uh, that touched Jesus, the, the, the tassel of his garment, and was instantaneously made well, you, you understand that she was an interruption. But Jesus didn't see her as an interruption. Jesus saw her as the mission for which he had come, which was to show compassion. We have to look observantly. We have to listen intently. We have to linger patiently. Number four, we have to lift carefully. We have to lift carefully. I learned this in a physical way recently. Several months ago, I was visiting an elderly couple. I had called them, and I said, I'm going to come out and visit with you. I know your husband's really sick, and, and um, I want to come out and just visit you. I hadn't seen you in a little while, and I want to come spend some time with you. Well, I put it on the calendar, and I went out to the house. And When I got there, I found this little lady uh, falling off her porch, laying in the front bushes. She had gone out because she knew it was about time for me to come. She had gone out to sweep off her porch for me to come which you don't have to do that if I'm coming. I'm not doing that for you if you come to my porch. Matter of fact, I may not even answer the door for you. And I found her. She had fallen off the porch and into the bushes. She had been laying there 15 or 20 minutes. She said, I was just waiting for you to get here because I needed help. Now, I, I'm, I suppose in the medical business, it, you, they teach you how to help people, you know, pick people up and how not to hurt yourself and how not to hurt them. I hadn't had any of that training. <laughs> I don't know anything about that. I, I'm not strong anyway. I, I'm not, you know, I, where's the spinach? I want my papa. I need spinach. And for the next few minutes, I, I mean, I'm wrapped around her. Bless her heart. I realized man, you got to be careful. It'd be awful to get her about halfway up and drop her back in the bushes. <laughs> By the way, we did e eventually get her up. She dusted herself off and I went in and sat down. She may have been sore, but she didn't break anything apparently, for which I'm very grateful. But you get the idea that you got to lift carefully. You, you can't use trite cliches and empty platitudes. You can't tell somebody to get over something when you've never been through it yourself. You just ought to get over it. You can't tell somebody that. If you haven't walked in their shoes, you don't know what it feels like where they are. And you have to lift carefully. The timing has to be right. The manner has to be right when you're going about trying to help somebody else that's broken. During the war in Afghanistan, there was a little eight-year-old Afghan girl who was severely burned when her, mother, when her home was destroyed during one of the battles. She was taken to the U.S. Army Hospital and treated, but she wouldn't respond to anyone. She wouldn't speak to anybody. Finally, after a lengthy period of time, one of the nurses just carefully, she just carefully lifted the little girl out of her bed and held her in her arms and rocked her for a solid hour. And they say that her response was amazing. She began to smile at the doctors and the nurses. She started talking to her father again. And within a month, she began to learn how to walk again. She, she just responded to somebody who understand how to lift carefully. You, you mamas probably know this better than any of us daddies. Sometimes what your children need more than, especially when they're young, more than anything else, is they just need mama. You don't need to say anything. They just need mama to hold them. Amen, ladies. For those of you that can't say amen, I feel sorry for your kids. Sometimes they just need to have someone to hold them. She responded to the careful, loving act of holding her in her arms. <coughs> Sometimes... What we have to do is lift carefully. We always have to lift carefully. <clears throat> we have to be careful not to hurt them more by what we're doing. <clears throat> not to hurt them more by what we're doing. Not using the trite platitudes that 
you know, get over it. Quote him a verse of scripture. Get on down the road. You'll get through this. You'll get over this. Hey, <clears throat> there's some things you don't get over. There's some things that God has to bring you peace to keep going in the midst of them. In the grace and the strength of God. And you know who he wants to use to do that? He wants to use you and me to live in love like Jesus. And number five, and lastly, we must love liberally. We've got to look observantly. We've got to listen intently. We've got to linger patiently. We've got to lift carefully. And we've got to love liberally. I mean by that generously. You remember the Good Samaritan? He finds this man that nobody else wanted anything to do with. The religious elite wanted nothing else to do with. He puts him on his horse or on his animal, takes him down to an inn, pays for it, and says, when I come back, <coughs> if there's anything else that he, that he owes, I'll make up the difference. <coughs> and he loved liberally. <coughs> Sometimes if we have the means to be able to do so, we've got to get our pocketbook out and we've got to help. By the way, I don't have COVID, I don't have flu, <clears throat> and I don't have RSV. I just have my throat's closing up on me. I'm sorry. Somebody have compassion on me, would you? <clears throat> you got to love liberally. You got to love liberally. Listen to what James says. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? He goes on to say that faith like that is dead, meaning useless. Faith like that is useless. It doesn't change your life, and it doesn't change anybody else's life. We've got to be willing to pull out our wallet sometimes and say, what can, I, what, what can I do to help? Now, I'm not suggesting you walk down the street, somebody walks up to you that is a drug addict, you hand them money, they'll probably turn it into drugs. That's not probably the best way to go about that. But there's times when you pull out your wallet and you try to help. We must love liberally. And can I say that our church, I think, at least I feel, is one of the most generous when it comes to this matter. Helping people that are broken. Terry Muck is an author. And he tells a story about a man who had no interest in spiritual matters and who lived next door to a Christian family. The neighbors talked to one another about things in general. They shared tools back and forth across the fence. But that was about the extent of their interaction with each other. But one day the unbeliever's wife died. She was buried. The unbeliever wrote these words after his wife had passed and been buried. I was in total despair. I went through the funeral procession and the service like I was in a trance. After the service, I went to the path along the river and walked all night. But I didn't walk alone. My neighbor followed me, I guess. Stayed all night. He didn't speak. He didn't even walk beside me. He just followed me. When the sun finally came up over the river, he came over and said, let's go get some breakfast. He finishes by saying, I go to church now, my neighbor's church. A faith that can produce that kind of love is something I want to find out more about. I want to love and be loved like that for the rest of my life. Can I just tell you, we meet people, you meet people every day that just want to be loved like that for the rest of their lives. And that's what Jesus wants to do through us. That's what Jesus wants to do through us. We have to look observantly and listen intently and linger patiently and lift carefully and love liberally. But folks, we got to start being the people that are like that live in love like Jesus, who are people of compassion. When there's a death around us, we show up. When there's heartbreak or heartache, we love and we care. When they're in the hospital, 
We don't all go to the hospital, but we pray and we send cards and we try to do everything we can to be encouraging. When there's good things in life, when we're on a mountaintop and somebody is celebrating, we don't get jealous because it's not us, but we run to those people and we rejoice with those that are rejoicing. Because we ought to have an indescribable compassion that's like the indescribable compassion of Jesus. <clears throat> I want to close with this, this little story. Mary and I have been married 40, we'll be 47 years next summer. And when we got married, we did a stupid thing. Well, not other than her marrying me, I mean. <clears throat> we did a really stupid thing. We were really, really passionate about Jesus. We're still passionate about Jesus, but we're a little wiser now. We were really, really passionate about Jesus. We really wanted to be in the ministry, and we really wanted to serve God together for the rest of our days. And so when we planned the wedding, I say we, Mary planned the wedding. Um, <clears throat> one of the, uh, the items of the wedding was for us to turn around after we'd been pronounced husband and wife and to sing a song. That's stupid. We were, too, we were too young to, to know how stupid that was. <clears throat> walk down the aisle. She walked down the aisle, join each other on the platform, go through the I do's and will use, and we all agree. Put a ring on each other's finger, kneel down at a kneeling bench, have the pastor sing the Lord's Prayer for the wedding. And then he turns us around and he introduces us as Mr. and Mrs. David Lemming. And then we step to a microphone. This is really stupid. <laughs> we stepped to a microphone and we sang a song. This song ought to be the song of every person who's thinking about indescribable compassion. It's an old hymn. It comes back from the early 1900s. It started with General Booth who wanted to send encouragement to all of the Salvation Army outposts, but it was really expensive to tell, send telegrams, so he narrowed it down to one word, and the word that he sent was the word others. Somebody took that word and turned it into a poem, and then somebody took the poem and they turned it into a song. But, but listen, listen to it. This is what we sang. I don't know that we've lived up to it completely, but this is what we sang. Lord, help me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Yes, others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee. Help me in all the work I do to ever be sincere and true and know that all I do for you must needs be done for others. And then you sing the chorus again. Let self be crucified and slain and buried deep and all in vain. May efforts be to rise again except to live for others in the chorus again. So when my work on earth is done and my new work in heaven's begun, I praise you for the crown I've won, but praise you more for others. Yes, others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee.